This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Hello and welcome to Water Cooler, brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Claire Lehman is an Australian psychology graduate and an entrepreneur in free speech. The online magazine she started six years ago, Quillette, is a haven for intelligent free thinkers. It's a magazine that pushes against the boundaries of left-wing orthodoxy, a forum for the kind of opinions that would get you into trouble if you uh, tried to publish them elsewhere, or so it's said. Claire, welcome to Watercooler. It's terrific to have you. I've admired your stuff for a long time, but it's the first time we've had a chance to have you on. Welcome. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, Now, Claire, I was taught that it was the height of bad manners to talk about a woman's age, but I don't know really what the rules are these days around that. So here, well, let's come straight out with it. You're in your mid-30s, which classifies you as a millennial. Yes. Uh, Millennials in the mind of older generations uh, like myself are seen as self-absorbed, moralizing narcissists, willfully ignorant of their own history and tradition, dogmatic and wrong about almost everything. Uh, You, on the other hand, uh, are completely the opposite. You're none of those things. So my question is, have I got the stereotype wrong or are you just a misfit? Uh, that's an interesting question. I actually haven't been asked that before. Um, I suppose I would qualify as an elder millennial, but uh, I and and many of the generational changes I see are in people younger than myself. So people in university now in their early twenties. I think there's a lot of variation in people my age and people in their 30s and that might have to do with where they come from where they grow up grew up whether or not their parents whether or not they're able to own any property I mean there's a lot of variation in in responsibilities that people in their 30s have and and potentially one mark of difference or one point of difference is that Uh, I didn't, I haven't had a sort of private school, middle-class upbringing. I came, I come from Port Adelaide in in South Australia, which is of quite working class and quite blue collar. So that might give me a little bit of point of difference from some of the other millennials that you're stereotyping. Well, well, let me, let me allow me to be bold enough to summarise your early life. You grew up in Adelaide, as you said, Port Adelaide, daughter of an artist and a childcare worker, I think I read. Um, A speech pathologist. Okay, well, uh, as a variation on that, uh, you studied psychology and English at Adelaide University, where you first encountered post-structural theory, uh, which in one interview I read, you you decided in a very early age was bullshit. Um, Was that... Was that the radicalising moment in your life, do you think, or was there something else? Uh, Yeah, politicising moment. I definitely, uh, yeah, I remember being at university, being quite young in my undergraduate days and being um, tasked with reading a lot of Michael, uh, Michel Foucault and Derrida and Deleuze Guattari and just thinking it was nonsense. Not just the philosophy, but how the academics... um, almost worshipped these philosophers and weren't, um, you know, 
prescribing any readings that would debate their philosophical points of view. It was all very much one-sided, like a one-sided kind of presentation of a epistemological framework. And it just didn't seem, it's, I, I remember coming to a point where I thought, this is indoctrination, this is not education. And that would have been in the early 2000s. And so even though I had a passionate interest in literature, I switched to psychology because I thought, you know, a scientific framework is going to be uh, more more oriented towards truth seeking than what I'm experiencing in the humanities. And it was. Yeah, I, of course, now, I mean, let's fast forward 10, 15 years, that that uh, virus, as I call it, that was infecting intellectual thought in in universities is now leaked out of the lab and it's infecting all public thought isn't it i mean you'd know um you know very well helen helen pluckrose and james Lindsay's recent book uh cynical theories which sets this out in clear detail how you know corporations uh, are now buying into this what we call woke did you ever think it would happen that way oh i i didn't honestly i didn't and i I, I first noticed that this way of thinking, this ideological way, you know, this ideological framework becoming more and more popular when it leaked into mainstream media in the press. So I remember before I started Quillette, you know, reading more columns in the sort of left-leaning media that were coloured by this kind of post-structural lens and I thought this is this is bad this is dangerous and little did I know that it would just explode into the culture in a matter of years I think thanks to the power of the internet and uh, social media in particular in being able to spread these ideas like you said like a virus Mm. um so let's move on your your story you 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 complete your undergraduate course. I think you start a postgraduate course in psychology. You don't finish it uh, because you find something else that interests you. You pick up the story. Yeah, well, I, I, I started a family. I, had a, I got married and had a baby back in 2013. Uh, and I now have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, soon to be eight and five years old. Uh, and, you know, as a, I suppose as a young woman trying to figure out the, both the realities of having a career and having a family, I did a lot of thinking about gender and about feminism and about the trade-offs that one has to consider. And it more and more, it, can, it led me to believe that a lot of feminist rhetoric is um simplistic and not always uh in women's best interests because I suppose as a young woman I I saw the reality that the, these trade-offs are very difficult and some and I, and I realized that a lot of the narratives that I had been exposed to prior to my 20s or prior to my mid to late 20s simplified these choices and, um, and it made me question what I had, the conventional wisdom that I had hitherto, heretofore received. Yeah, I might just pick up on that, the, the feminism. Um, 
I suppose the number one question is, do you describe yourself as a feminist? Are you comfortable with that? And if so, what do you mean by feminist? Yeah, yeah I would definitely describe myself as a feminist if, if it's defined as a, a stance where we want to promote equal opportunity for women. I think that society needs women to be able to, um, you know, achieve great things if they want to. But I, I, I'm definitely not a feminist if the definition is that we need to have complete parity in every domain of society. We need to have 50-50 men and women in every domain of society. I think that's utopian and completely at odds with human nature um yeah. and so I, and, and i also think it's quite dangerous because uh you know men and so i believe that men and women are biologically and psychologically different and um the differences can be quite small in many areas but cumulatively they can become quite large if you add them up and so trying to shoehorn in women into occupations or preferences that they're not naturally inclined to want to go into or vice versa, doing the same for men, uh, I think is coercive and doesn't, will, does not lead to the best outcomes for individuals and for society as well. So, so I'd call that a, a liberal feminism uh, and that is yeah, ba based on Robert Menzies uh, articulated this very well in the 1940s, uh, that it was a case that if we believe as liberals in equal opportunity, everybody deserves equal respect uh, and, e and an equal chance to have a go in life, then of course, uh, there's, there's no realm of, of, of life from which women should, should be barred. But that's quite different, isn't it, from this quotas idea that people have come up with? Yeah, I, and I think one of the the most dangerous uh, viewpoints of on the left is this idea that um, human beings or individuals are interchangeable and that we don't have our own preferences, our own personalities, our own uh, desires. And this idea that we're interchangeable and that groups are interchangeable is very dangerous and uh, it's been something that I've noticed for quite some time for many years and it's one thing that worries me about leftist uh, discourse because I don't uh, I don't see it de-escalating I feel it seems as though this concept that human beings are all the same and I don't mean of course we're all the same in terms of our dignity and our and you know our moral worth but we're not the same when it comes to things like our preferences and our personalities um i don't see this de-escalating despite the mountains of scientific evidence that shows that individuals differ well claire we might come back to those all those issues of identity politics and so forth in a moment but first um we should fill people in who haven't yet been to Quillette for what Quillette is about. You set it up in 2015. It's now an international brand, highly successful. Jonathan Haidt, the American social psychologist, came up with what I thought was a neat description. Quillette is a gathering place for people who love to play with ideas and hate being told there are ideas which they are not supposed to play with. Uh, how did this obstreperous child uh, come to be born? Well, I was 
spending a lot of time on the internet and uh, I had linked in with some very interesting individuals through social media and I was a postgraduate student but I had to drop out because I couldn't manage my studies with my childcare duties and I I just was aware that there were interesting people who didn't have newspaper columns who weren't professional writers but they had interesting things to say and I, I saw a gap in the market because I was not a conventional conservative but I was certainly critical of leftist dogma and I sort of saw a niche where that area that ideological niche was not being filled uh, and I also thought that there was room for long-form commentary sometimes what you would might consider a hybrid of academic publishing and uh, general audience publishing. Mm. And I just, I just wanted to play around and have a go. And it, it, it surprisingly became quite successful quite quickly. And ever since that, that early success, I've been trying to catch up. Um, it's been one of those projects that has just hit a nerve there was an audience for it and we're just trying to cater to that demand. Let me delve a bit, if I may, into the philosophy of Claire Lehman uh, and trying to get a better understanding of your your guiding philosophy and, and perhaps even your politics with a few quick questions. So where do you sit on the political spectrum? I would call myself a centrist. So I have a hodgepodge of uh, stances. I'm certainly not doctrinaire, uh, you know, doctrinaire uh, centre-right. You know, I might every now and then agree with the left on some issues, but, um, you know, as I get older more and more, I, I just gravitate towards the principles that underpin liberal democracy. So civil debate, open inquiry and freedom of speech. And I think those are principles that, you know, they're not right wing uh, and they're not left wing. They're just, they're just principles that underpin a decent liberal society. Uh, so I, 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 I see myself as uh, definitely centrist, but I support principles that allow for pluralism and democracy more than anything else. So, so that in my book would, would make you a, a liberal thinker, uh, um, if not a capital L liberal. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, one description uh, that I read talking about you um, when I was researching for this interview was, was somebody labelled you as a libertarian. <laughs> How do you feel about that one? <laughs> Well, I, I think it would be accurate in a cultural sense. So I certainly support uh, uh, as much freedom as possible when it comes to freedom of expression. But I, I probably wouldn't be accurately described as a libertarian when it comes to economics or the market. I, I mean, I, I am in favour of a free market, but I think, you know, free markets with a little bit of regulation here and there promote competition and I'm not I wouldn't be as um, libertarian as your classical American libertarian for example when it comes to things like tax so there might be a I think maybe the 
it's the distinction between a classical liberal of the British kind and the American libertarian, which is a little bit more, uh, you know, anarchistic, if that makes sense. Yeah, and so to that, that the the C word, conservative. Um, it seems to me that people, uh, increasingly on the centre right, use use it as a noun, uh, as in I am a conservative. But for myself, and I'm interested to hear what you think, I'm more comfortable using it as an adjective. You know, we take a conservative mm. position on things, um, you know, following the logic of Edmund Burke, you know, that to throw everything away and start again is is a pretty terrible idea. You, No doubt you get burdened with this word conservative. How do you see it? Oh, I think uh, true conservatism is... Uh is very important and uh, I have many many friends who are conservatives and I and I respect conservatism a lot and I would probably sometimes describe myself as a small c conservative but I suppose I would differ simply because my temperament is quite uh, experimental and um, I in my personal life I like to you know uh, I enjoy the arts and I enjoy um ideas of technology, you know, technological sort of um, improvements. And so I, I'm more, I think temperamentally, I'm less conservative, but I respect conservatism as a political philosophy. And I, I think that an alliance between conservatives and liberals is very important for democracy, because you do need that balance, you do need um, very experimental people to push the boundaries, but you also need conservatives to sort of rein that in. And I think having both is essential to a healthy society. And I get very upset when people on the left um, try and stigmatise conservatives uh, because it's such an essential part of society, you know, to having that balance between liberal liberalism and conservatism. Um, Let's explore this this idea of free speech on the internet. Uh, you're a great example of how uh, you that could be put to good use. But uh, as you know, uh, there uh, there's an increasingly censorious quality to Silicon Valley. In, in 2017, you published a number of pieces defending James Darmore, a Google employee who'd been sacked after a note he wrote to his managers was made public. He wrote the note after attending an diversity program, I think, and he complained that Google's was an ideological echo chamber where some ideas are too sacred to be discussed honestly. Um, now, I thought the fact that he was sacked for that uh, seems to be firm evidence that he was right, that tech companies are increasingly intolerant and censorious. But Tell me what happened after you came out in support of, 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 of him. Well, that's a few years ago now, uh, but we were, uh, uh, that, that was a breakthrough moment for us, actually, because we weren't, we, we were uh, not, we hadn't reached a mass audience before that. And, and then post publishing, um, so what we published were, was the commentary of four scientists on the validity and defensibility of James Damore's memo. And, and the four scientists said, look, there may be some flaws in the memo, but overall it's um, scientifically uh, defensible. It, it would be, it, 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 
none of the evidence he cited was, you know, he cited a lot of evidence and it was a legitimate argument to make. Um, we had uh, all sorts of attacks after that. Um, as our prominence grew, so did our, so did the attacks on us. And so we suffered some uh, uh, trolling attacks that took us down and so on. But we've since become quite robust and um, desensitized to all of those attacks on a personal level and on a technolo technological level, we've got the infrastructure to be able to withstand cyber attacks. At the time we didn't. Um, and, but the, the issue of Silicon Valley that you mentioned, I think sometimes uh, we forget that there is, there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley and many of them might be censorious, but there's also a, a, a culture of libertarianism as well in Silicon Valley where people are building technologies that will allow us to um, retain our free, freedom of speech. Um, you know, like Bitcoin is an example of that and different cryptographic tools that people are building are being built in, to ensure that we have freedom on the net. Look, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, there's, there's so many uh, exciting developments uh, in uh, on the internet and things that are coming out uh, that you say, well, that's fantastic. And But I, I think, Claire, that, I mean, early on, when, um, you know, back in the days when you still had to log on to the internet, you weren't sort of automatically hooked up 24 hours a day. I think we were really excited because we thought this is this is fantastic. This is where people are going to connect around the world and broaden the discussion and, and this great nirvana we, of free speech we were entering. Hasn't worked like that, has it? I mean, on the one hand, you've got these deep silos uh, now between, you know, I mean, you go on the internet and and being a good you know, environmentalist, it comes up as uh, you put in BP and it comes up as uh, you know BP's new green challenge. Uh, if I go on, I get shares and stocks opportunities. You know, so we're living in different worlds. And and Quillette, does Quillette manage to bridge those worlds or not? Ah, uh, well, because we because we try to remain nonpartisan, we have in uh, many ways bridged the world amongst a certain intellectual class. So you will find highly educated people on both the left and the right reading us. That doesn't mean we're reaching the activist class who um, go online and, and, and participate in the online mobs that get people fired. So I'm, I'm quite proud to say that our audience is quite mixed politically and we have a lot of independent thinkers but you would expect that um and 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 i am quite proud of the fact that we we're not we don't just cater to one particular ideological lens that being said most of the people who read us are quite well educated and we're not you know we don't have that mass market appeal that uh say um other outlets might have uh, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have we have underestimated how revolutionary the internet is. I mean, you could even if you just look at the impact the internet has had on legacy main uh, legacy media organizations like the New York Times and how they're becoming more narrow, narrower and narrower over time, catering to a specific niche audience. 
it's quite frightening because we don't know where this will end and if are we all just going to live in this balkanized world where we have our own ideological uh, biases just confirmed back to us or are we going to live in a shared reality like we used to prior to the internet we don't know and that's mm. the big question and here's the thing, they call it the dark net, I think, and you're supposed to be queen of it. But um, the, the this idea, you know, like ABC's Q&A now is getting audiences less than 300,000. Yeah. I, I don't know what you're getting, but, a, a, you know, a, a, a John Anderson um, webcast podcast might get, you know, a million. So <laughs> if he's got the right guest on. So that we're not now bound by this you know the old media environment we we can take opportunities can't we and jump out and create a world of our own yes and that's right and despite the downsides and there are many downsides of the internet i would never complain about the internet because i've made a career out of it and i have my own company and i think that along with the bad comes some wonderful upsides and I think it's uh you know we 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 still haven't reaped the benefits of being able to connect really open-minded intelligent people all over the world I mean just think about how fast the COVID vaccines were developed you know it was uh they sequenced the genome of coronavirus in a Chinese lab. They sent it to someone, someone in a lab in the United States and they developed the Moderna vaccine in a matter of hours. Like having that kind of connectivity is um, fabulous for the future of humanity. It's just, it comes with a lot of downsides as well. We have to sort of figure out how we maximise the upsides and uh, and you know, minimise the impact of the downsides. Mm. And challenging the conventional wisdom, which is what you, you seem to do in your sleep, as far as I can see, but challenging the conventional wisdom is, is difficult and, and often uh, those of us in, you know, the world of opinion pieces are sometimes reluctant to go there. The one that, that I, I have written about more recently are the problems that arise from the transgender movement if you like and I know you have too um take me through that where do you see you know because on the surface okay you know we everybody has should be allowed to do whatever they want to do sort of thing but why does it become a particular problem with transgenderism do you think yeah the, the the transgender movement is complex and there are a range of issues with it uh Firstly, I would say that the, the gender ideology that is promoted by a lot of transgender activists is wrong. Uh, humans, uh, sex in human beings, in homo sapiens, is binary. You're either born male or female. And the way that sex is defined is not the way you look. And it's not even defined by your genitalia. It's defined by whether you have uh, small gametes or large gametes, small gametes are sperm, whether you have the capacity to produce sperm, large gametes are eggs. Now, there are people who are intersex, but they are a very tiny minority. And so some many transgender activists promote an ideology which argues that 
sex in Homo sapiens is not binary and that it's a spectrum and that not only is it a spectrum, but that it's fluid. Now that's just wrong factually. And so as a person trained in a, you know, a scientific background, it, it concerns me that something that is factually wrong is becoming more and more mainstream a position that people hold. So that's one issue. The second issue is um, uh, coercing language. Now I have no problem with respecting people's preferred pronouns. And I think it's polite uh, and respectful if someone is transgender to refer to them as the pronoun that they wish to be referred to as. But I do have a problem with being compelled to use made up words that were not words a couple of years ago, were not words 10 years ago. So there are made up pronouns like zer and z and who knows what else. I mean, there are other pronouns and I'm not going to use them. There is, you know, like our language has to be agreed upon publicly. And I do not, I will not be compelled to use made up words. And I am horrified that some Western countries, I know that Canada was one and, it, and Australia may be going down this path, particularly in Victoria, are edging further and further towards compelled speech. So, that, so that's another issue. Another, another issue with the transgender movement is the fact that it seems that there's an explosion in young people identifying as transgender, uh, particularly teenage girls. So we've published a number of articles on this over at Quillette. Uh, there's a, there, there's um, a term called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which describes girls and some boys as well who, who never expressed feelings of gender dysphoria as little children, but as they have gone into their teenage years and they've um, found groups or found information online, they've suddenly identified as transgender. And I mean, that wouldn't be a problem if it weren't for the fact that invasive medical treatments are being encouraged that can have long lasting and deleterious effects. So. We're talking about hormone treatment, uh, surgery, and, and there, there are examples. I've read testimonies from girls who have gone through hormone treatment, testosterone treatment, and have had double mastectomies who have later regretted it. And it's just absolutely horrifying. And so that's a concern. So there's many issues. There's the, the fact that a factually wrong ideology is becoming more and more mainstream, the fact that speech is being compelled and the fact that this identity seems to be somewhat socially contagious. So yeah, it is, the transgender issue is a, is a real, it's complex, but it is concerning. The thing is, it's come out of nowhere, hasn't it, Claire? And, and, uh, and it's a new thing. I mean, you're, you, 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 you're right, of course. I mean, the, 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 the issue of people being intersex or, uh, you know, it's been a, 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 something that's been recognised for a long time, right, by psychologists and, and, and others. Uh, 
but this is entirely new. It's a much larger phenomena. And uh, as you say, I mean, I think more than 80% of the cases um, are, are teenage girls, which is completely against uh, the historic trend. And, and this late onset, which is new, because before it was apparent from quite a young age if a child um, uh, was transgender. So, but we're not allowed to debate it. That's the point. It's a brand new phenomenon, and, and maybe it's something we've only just discovered and it's always been there beneath the surface. But how do we know if we can't discuss it openly? Yeah, and I, I think it's a real worry because, I mean, it's a strange issue because if you ask, I mean, most people will agree that, look, sex is either binary or bimodal. Most people are either male or female. Like a, a reasonable person will agree. But then if they're pressed and, uh, you know, an activist tries to get someone to agree that well no sex is actually a spectrum and you can be all sorts of things in between male and female people have a really difficult time uh, uh standing for up for what they know to be the truth and i think it's a it's a really uh interesting phenomenon the way so many reasonable people are sort of caving into pressure and denying what they know to be the truth. I think it's it's very interesting, but also very concerning. And that and and I but 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 I personally believe that most people are genuinely compassionate towards children who have gender dysphoria and also adults who have gender dysphoria and would like to live as a different sex than what they were born as. I think most people are compassionate in those circumstances, but uh, and and transphobia I think is probably quite rare, and there can be more acceptance of transgenderism. But at the same time, this pressure on people to de to deny what they know is the truth is very worrying and very. Uh, su it's surprising to me how many people do cave in. You mentioned Victoria, I think, where the law in many areas is becoming less and less Australian every time the parliament sits. But on this issue of transgenderism, that they recently passed the the so-called conversion therapy legislation, which is there to outline so-called gay conversion therapy, which which I don't think is anything anybody I've spoken to has come up with any instance of it happening anywhere in the Australian continent on it in at least the last hundred years. Uh, but, you know, the, the, this, this, the real target, of course, is, is to protect, if you like, transgender people from, from, uh, uh, from undue pressure. And it includes the provision that prayer in certain circumstances is a crime. If you pray with somebody, even with their consent, uh, for them to discover that perhaps you know they're they're not transgender after all, that's a crime. Why 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 this why this intolerance of religion? What intolerance generally? Well, I think I think that's actually a secondary. Uh, I mean, that's an important point. But transgender activists, it's important that Victorians are aware of this. Transgender activists argue that letting a child uh, weight that is not giving them puberty blockers and not giving them treatment that would facilitate a transition from one sex to another, they argue that that is conversion therapy. So the argument is that is that doing nothing 
and not letting a child transition is itself conversion therapy because the child is transgender and to let the child be his or her natural self is to help them transition. So this is a very dangerous situation uh, and it's been playing out overseas in the UK and the US and I, it blew my mind when I realised that transgender activists were using the term conversion therapy uh, to describe doctors who recommended a wait and see approach. Now, if that if a wait and see approach is deemed illegal, then children will be given these experimental medical treatments such as puberty blockers, uh, which we don't know the long-term effects of. Um, it's just ghastly, in my opinion, that we're going down this track and that Victoria is even considering this. But this is where we are because people are too afraid to debate the topic. Well, um, once again, we have every reason to be grateful for you and to Quillette. Look, the Quillette business model um, was to take it international. Uh, started in Australia, you very quickly moved international. Uh, I get that. I think half your readers are in the United States, I think, or thereabouts. Mm. And about, what, 5% here in Australia? Yeah. <laughs> Look, all right, that's that's fine, uh, and I appreciate the challenges of a market the size of Australia. But but here's here's my concern: uh, the consequences of this is that the debate becomes increasingly internationalised. And, and I'm not I'm not just picking on you. I mean, this is general, right? Uh, and and we 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 here get deeply into the politics and culture war of America and and Britain. Um, but there are there are very important differences between us and the United States, for instance, on, say, the issue of racial identity. Uh, because, because These become blurred. Uh, yes, we, we here face the challenge of Aboriginal disadvantage. And yes, uh, the US is still reckoning with the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. But the moral questions are very differently framed and the practical challenges are too. By blurring the two... Uh, by trying to apply the Black Lives Matter debate here or even arguing against the Black Lives Matter arguments, to me leads us into dangerous directions and doesn't allow us really to work through our own issues as Australians. Do you agree with that? And, and if so, what's to be done? Yes, I definitely agree with that point. And it's worrying how social media is allowing America in particular to export all of its cultural dysfunctions to the rest of the world. I thought it was uh, very worrying or not worrying. I thought it was, um, you know, I thought it was scary, in fact, that the Black Lives Matter protests, which were about police treatment of African-Americans inside America spread all over the world, across Europe to Australia. I mean, we have very different cultures on the issue, in the issue of race. We might share language and we might share some other cultural practices. But when it comes to the issue of race, America is uh, its own country with its own history. And I thought it was disturbing that there grievances were exported all over the world and I think we have to resist that as best we can and I think it's also insulting 
to, for example, the indigenous people who live here and the indigenous cultures to be conflated with, uh, you know, African Americans who live continents away. I mean, it, it's flattening and homogenizing culture to lump every culture in together and 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 pretend that all of the grievances and all of the issues that need to be worked out are all the same. I mean, they're quite different. And I think it's insulting to equate Indigenous culture to African-American culture and vice versa. I, I mean, I would be offended if I was an Indigenous person, if I was just, you know, my history was, was wiped away and, and I was somehow... Um, lumped in, in in an international context. Uh, so I think we do have to resist that. I'm not sure how we do that, but it is an artifact of America's cultural power and the ability of these issues, these hot button issues to be spread so quickly through social media. I, I guess it's, a, and, and you you are contributing to this, it's, it's, it's drawing out more voices in Australia, more thinkers in Australia and empowering and emboldening them to uh, to get out there in the public square and and start debating these issues from an Australian perspective I would have thought I think so and I think also um, I mean there, there are all sorts of problems at the education level but there's nothing that can compare to getting a good understanding of your own country's history and if we speak about our own history more and history is taught, more in our schools, then we will have some kind of immunity to this globalization of culture, which is where we're witnessing at the moment. Um, and we, you know, we have to preserve our culture. We have to preserve our history, including the bad parts of it. We can't just pretend they didn't happen. But as part of that, we have to recognize that we are our own place in the world and we have our own culture and our own history I think I, I I'm just so surprised that that all of these American issues are being transferred around the world I noticed that the French have been putting up some kind of resistance which I think is interesting and perhaps we can have some leadership from our politicians as well I, I think I, irony in that I mean it, it was it was as you Going back to the start of this interview and Derrida and Foucault, it, it, it was the French intellectuals that set us along this path and now they're calling halt. Yeah, well, the, I think the French have less uh, less of this hero worship towards their philosophers as the Americans do. And they're, they're a little bit more sceptical of post-structuralism post and post-modernism now, thankfully, uh, despite exporting it to the world. Well, uh, look, I'd recommend everybody goes to uh, Quillette, to the, uh, I guess, to your, your URL, uh, and and looks looks at what's available. And I, I noticed actually last night there was a podcast on this very topic on how some of the French thinkers are rebelling against this, and that's on my must-listen-to list. Look, Claire, thank you for your, your, your ideas, your heterodoxy, your injection of intelligent thought and thank you for your entrepreneurialism i think it's to be greatly admired uh, it's been great having you here on water cooler oh thanks for having me nick pleasure thank you you've been listening to the water cooler podcast coming to you from the menzies research center in sydney you can email us at watercooler at menziesrc.org 
To help us build an audience for this great free content, then we'd value your feedback. You can email me, Nick Cater, at watercaller at menziesrc.org. You can also become one of the growing number of people who help support this work by becoming a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre. You can become a subscriber from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org. Menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening.